Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I want you to think back for a moment to that specific day and that specific instance in which you experienced the grace of God for the first time. That first time, maybe somebody took you to church, or maybe somebody shared the gospel with you, or maybe you were reading the Bible, or maybe you, uh, you know, had a friend that was sitting with you, and, and they were talking about these things. Maybe it was through a worship song or some other form of the gospel being preached, but there was a specific moment in your life when Jesus went from being a philosophy, a historical figure, um, a theory, to being real where His love became real to you. It's something that you knew, not just because you were brought up in it, not just because you had been going to church or Sunday school, not just because other people believed it, but it was your personal encounter. It was your face-to-face moment. It was when Jesus looked you in the eye and spoke to you about your destiny and your future and His love for you and His grace for you. You had a personal encounter in that moment, and it changed something in your life, or at the very least, it should have. It should have set a whole new journey into motion, a a transformation and a sanctification in your life as you then were reborn, born anew, and able to begin a new journey, a new life filled with the Spirit of God where your values shifted and, and the way you saw the world shifted, your worldview was changed to now see the truth of the creation of God as the creator of the spiritual reality within which you exist. You had a personal encounter with Jesus. And our heart is that the people of our city would have personal encounters with Jesus. That every man, woman, and child in this city, in this nation will come to know Jesus the way that we know him. Not as a religion, not as a philosophy, not as a worldview, not as a political statement, but as the living son of God who died for us and was raised from the dead. That's, that's the heart of our church. We're a missional organization. We are here. We do not exist for ourselves. We exist for those who are our non-members. We exist to make a difference. God has called us for these things. And so in the past few weeks, as we've been worshiping, we've been preaching through the book of Colossians, and we've been doing uh, church here on Sunday mornings, um, I've just been taking in the atmosphere, which really is part of my job as the lead pastor. I have a very important job, and believe it or not, my job, my main role is not to be involved in logistics. If I'm involved in too many of the logistics of church, then I'm a bad leader, then I'm not leading well. My job is to get out of the logistics so that I can see from a greater perspective and hear the voice of God. I need to hear from God as the lead pastor of this church, a role that I was called into by the Holy Spirit. I need to hear from God. I need to see what God is saying to me, and I need to lead in that direction if I'm going to be found faithful. And so sometimes we get bogged down in all the practicalities So much so that we no longer see the wood for the trees, that we no longer have the perspective that we need. And this even happened to the apostles. The church was growing at a rapid rate in the the first century as as the gospel was, was spreading out from Jerusalem and the church was expanding. Thousands of people were coming to faith. And there was a point where complaints arose. Look, if you've got a church with like more than five people, you'll have a complaint at some point or another. 
And complaints arose even in their day. I love that. It makes me feel so much better. And, and the complaint was that there were some of the women in the distribution that were being overlooked. Some of the Greek women weren't um, in part of that, the, the mass that they would share or the communion that they would share, the meal that they would have together. Some weren't receiving a meal when the others were. And, and so there was a complaint. And the apostles said, is it right? Is it good for us to be, to be trying to take care of these logistics, the waiting on the tables and distributing of the food when we need to be giving ourselves to the preaching of the word and prayer, there was a specific call for leaders in the church to hear God's word and to preach God's word and not to get bogged down in the logistics. And so, and so part of my job is to do that, to just take in the atmosphere and to hear what God's spirit would be saying to us in this season right now as a church. And so I've been trying to listen the last few weeks to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us about our church. In a, in a sense, it's like keeping your finger on the pulse of the heartbeat of our community. If you cut us, what do we bleed? Legitimately, not just what we put on a, on a statement of faith on the website, but when you, when you cut the culture of our church, what does it bleed? What does it, what does it speak? What does it say about who we are? Is it something we are authentically embodying as a people? I need to put my finger on the pulse of the heartbeat of our community. Who are we, church? What are we about, church? And as I do that, at the same time, it is an imperative that we see the city, that we see the context within which God has placed us. We've got to see the people that we live alongside in this city. It's amazing how we can live in the midst of millions of other people, hundreds of thousands just in our area here, just in a small radius from where our church is, is based. And, and we, can, we can pass by thousands upon thousands of people on a daily basis, and they've basically become to us like billboards along the highway. Those billboards have been there. They're there every day. We don't even know what's on them anymore. We don't read them. We don't see them. In the same way, the people that are in our city that are not a part of our community, that are not a part of church, that maybe aren't believers, we, we don't even see them anymore. We hardly even make eye contact with people anymore. It's almost like we, we, we're so overwhelmed half the time that we, we don't even have the capacity to look somebody in the eyes, the time to notice somebody. Do we see the people that, live, that we live alongside here in the city of Joburg? From school meetings to sports events to work colleagues to the people we pass by in public, do we know the cry of our generation? Do we see the needs of those around us in our city? Do we see the city? And then what we've got to do is, is that we've got to connect who God has called us to be as a community to what we're called to do in the city. Because there are needs represented in our generation right now, and God is fashioning for himself constantly a people that are able to meet that need. God fashions us with great specificity. He's got a, a unique job for us to do. And so he moves us and molds us in a way that will allow us to meet those needs. In this generation, in this time, right now, it's relevant and it's real and it's who we're becoming if we'll lean into that process. 
I, li- I love to do DIY projects at home. Half the time, I, you know, I, I dismantle things, and then sometimes it takes me a few months to reassemble them, right? And I drive my wife a little crazy with that sometimes. Um, but, but it's what I love to do. And, and oftentimes, I'll be working on a project, and I realize I have the wrong tool with me right now, and all my tools are stored in the garage. And so I'll walk out to go get the specific tool I need for the specific job at hand. And in that way, we as a church are God's people, and He is shaping us into the specific tool that we need to be in order to meet the needs of our city. Do we even know what they are? Are we even aware of what is needed in this city? Are we connecting who we are to what, with what our city needs? And so I had this sense that as our culture is rapidly shifting, maybe at a pace unlike anything in all of history, as a result of the sensory overload of our information age. In the, in the, in the old days, ideas would take time to form and, to, and for those winds of philosophy and those, those fashionable fads of thinking to, to flow through a society or to flow through a culture. But right now, because of the fact that we are constantly being discipled, we're constantly being spoken to, we're constantly being confronted with different realities through social media and through everything that we're exposed to on a daily basis for hours every single day. The culture of our world is shifting so rapidly that identity is in question. Family is in question. Societal norms and values are being questioned. Realities and language and things are developing so quickly that it really is like basing your life on shifting sands right now. What is our response, church? Who are we in this time, church? And what I felt God impressed on me is that in a a world that is shifting so rapidly, we as the church need to refocus our goals and what it is that we're called to as a community of faith. We need to know what we're about. And as I was thinking about these things, the words of Jesus to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3 came to mind. In Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the church, and this is a a frightening thing to me in many ways that Jesus isn't just passively sitting one side saying, okay, you guys do, you know, just do church the best you can as long as you show up on Sundays and sing a few songs and do a few things and have some good conversations and then go on your way, then, then that's fine. No, Jesus is very specific about his church. He said, a zeal for God's house has consumed me. He's intentional and intense about it. And so when he finally shows up here to John on the island of Patmos in Revelation three, uh, 2 and 3, he begins to speak to those churches, and he's got very specific points that he raises with them. Some of them are commendations. Some things he says, I love to see the fact that you are loving people, that you are holding fast to the faith, that you're not buckling under the pressure of culture. Sometimes we forget Jesus cares about that. And other times he offers some criticisms. He says, there are a couple of things that you guys are doing that I'm not so happy about, and you better fix it. To many of the churches, he says, if you don't fix it, I will come and I will remove your lamp from your lampstand. You've been given a call. You take it with seriousness. And so in Revelation 3.14, he says, and the, it says, and the angel of the Lord, to the angel of, sorry, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Now, the angel of the church, that word angelos is just messenger, just talking about the lead pastor. The, the, his, Jesus says, to the lead pastor of that church, write this down. Man, that puts a shiver down my spine. 
Imagine getting a letter from Jesus specifically addressed to you. This is what it said. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For, I, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Isn't that just the culture of our generation? Especially in, in, in prosperous cities where people have done well and made their money and drive great cars and, 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 and live in great estates and, and have all their comforts met. They, live, they begin to live a life of comfort and they say, hey, why do I need church? Why do I need God? I am rich. I have prospered. But Jesus says this, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Some people are so poor that the only thing they have is money. The only thing that they derive their value from and their meaning from and their purpose from is their bank account. It's poverty when it comes to life, true life, true riches. So Jesus says, I counsel you. I'm giving you advice here. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Get a real kind of wealth. A wealth that's been tested through the fire. He's talking about that fire by which everybody's works will be tested on the capital D day of judgment. And only the things, only that which we have built with gold and silver and precious stones, only the eternal things will pass over into eternity. In other words, if it doesn't cross the divide between the temporal and the eternal, it's worth nothing. Jesus, if you're going to get gold, get it from me. Because my gold has been tried by fire and it has eternal value so that you may be rich, like really rich, like rich in the things that matter and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Jesus covers our shame and the white garments is his righteousness so get your righteousness and your, and your sense of self-worth and your, and your value in this life, not from the things of the world, but from me. Otherwise, you're naked and ashamed and solved to anoint your eyes that you may see. He wants to give us a, a, a specific cream, a solve, so that we could, can fix our eyes to be able to see with clarity and perspective, what matters in life. Why does Jesus say all of these things? Because he hates us? Because he's mad at us? Because he, because he wants to beat us up? No, he says, those whom I love, like a good father would, I reprove, I reprove and discipline. So because you know Jesus is saying this from a place of love, repent. Respond and be zealous about it. Have a passionate response to the word of God in your life this morning. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone 
hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's an invitation to a genuine relationship with God. I'll eat with you and you'll eat with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I mean, what an invitation. There's not an amount of money that you could pay to be able to sit on the throne with Jesus. He's invited us simply through responding in faith to sit on his throne with him as he sits on the throne of his father, that his victory would in that moment be our victory. That we would rule and reign with him in this age and in the age to come. See, Jesus has a real thought, real thoughts about a church community. And he wants his church to be switched on to his purposes. Not just to be all about comfort. Well, I, I live in comfort. I, I need nothing. Not re- knowing that when it comes to things that really matter, you are poor, pitiable, wretched, and blind. But Jesus offers us far greater riches. If you have an ear, hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Hear Him. When our world is going to hell in a a handbasket, we as the church of Jesus Christ cannot be found passively enjoying little Sunday services. The church is not a restaurant. It's not a service provider. And it's not even meant to be the most comfortable place on earth. The fact that churches often only grow not, when they're, not because they're biblical, not because they're missional, not because they have a great vision, but because they're comfortable is an indictment against us as God's people. That we are so addicted to comfort that we would step out of a God-given calling and purpose to make a difference in a city so that we can find a place with better aircon and better kids' facilities. If John was still sitting in Patmos right now, I feel like we might have gotten a letter. And I'm just being honest with you this morning because these are things I wrestle with and things I feel and things that stir within me. So forgive me, church, for speaking a little candidly this morning. But, but in all honestly, honesty, this is something that causes stress in my life. The fact that I know that our church needs to be attractional. A church needs to do everything short of becoming Disneyland itself at this point, just so that people would come and people would enjoy and people would would bring friends. And if if your church doesn't do that, then you face the very real prospect of not being able to grow. Now, growth is in our heart because it's in God's heart. He wants the church to grow. He wants people to be reached. He wants influence to be had. We need the leaders and the resources and the, and, 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 and the space to be able to do great things in a city. And we're passionate about that, unapologetically. We want the church to grow. But I feel like 
The reason why the current church model in our world, the main model is, is attractional or has to be attractional is because the church itself, which is the people, have lost their urgency to reach the lost. So the church has to try and set up everything so comfortably and have the best kids ministry facilities and all the right furniture and the, and the newsletters and the social media and because if we don't get it right, our church won't grow. And a lot of those are practical things. I'm not against them. But as we toe the line in that regard, I want to let you know that I constantly yearn for something more. And what I yearn for is an authentic move of God. What I yearn for is a revival in our city that we may have the privilege of being a part of. What I yearn for is passionate disciples of Jesus who are at the same time passionate about discipling others, that are walking their friends through a journey and standing by people and worshiping God and sharing the gospel and reaching the lost as something that comes from a deep inner yearning. What do you yearn for this morning? What does your heart yearn for when you're outside of this building, Monday through Saturday? What are you here for on a Sunday? See, I, I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and give an account, which the Bible says I'm going to. The Bible says that those that are overseers, that are elders, they must lead the church as ones who will give an account. So there is an account to be given. And I will stand before Jesus one day and say, how did you lead Anchor Church? And I don't want my best answer to be, I mean, we serve great coffee. And, and, and we, we, we got great furniture in and we built a nice cafe and the lighting was fantastic. And those are practical things and they're fine. But if they are what makes us a church, then we are nothing in the spiritual sense. And so as I was pondering and considering and seeing all these things in Revelation, I thought back to the start of my own journey when God accelerated my call. There's so many times as you look to your own journey and your own personal encounter with Jesus, there were certain things that God impressed on you that you were passionate about the moment you got saved. And you know, sometimes we think that those things are just part of our, our, our newborn state, part of our immaturity as believers. But, but really, many of those things that you felt passionate about the moment you genuinely believed in Jesus are things that God had already intentionally seeded in your life because He had a fulfillment for them in your future. He wants you to know that there is a fulfillment to the passions he put in you. And so he says, I would that you do not grow cold in the things I put in you when you encountered me the first time. I would that you would be zealous and come back to them so that you can fulfill the full experience of your salvation. I have something I want to do in and through your life. And so this took me back to to, to my journey, and my, some of my family are here today, and for those of you that know me, you'll know that I, I've genuinely walked with the Lord since I was a child. I've prayed from as early as I can remember. I've prayed. I've sp spent time with God. I've witnessed to my friends in primary school already. 
But there was a real acceleration of that call that happened for me towards the end of high school. And there were three things that I remember that stood out for me in that season that characterized my faith in God. Early things that were just present the moment I had that genuine experience of God's call, that genuine experience and encounter of Jesus. And I believe that when we grow cold, we grow cold primarily in these three things. When Jesus says you've grown cold, it's usually in these three things. Now, I could add more, but I wanted to just highlight these three from my journey this morning. And the first one is an insatiable hunger for God's word. An insatiable hunger for fellowship with the Holy Spirit, for, for prayer, for time with Jesus, to, to understand what the truth of God would say about every area of life. These days, we think of any question and we turn to Google or some online search, but really what we should be doing, doing is turning to the scriptures. What is God's heart for marriage? What is God's heart for, for, for kids and for parents? What is God's heart for a society? What is, what is the gospel? What does it speak? What is God's heart for me? What is my identity in Him? What does eternity look like? How do I approach my finances? How do I approach my relationships? How do I approach daily living? It's all in here. And I remember when, when, when I really felt this acceleration, I could not get enough. I just wanted to read God's word constantly all the time. I had my Bible out at break at school with colored pens. And I just didn't care who thought what. I needed to get through it. I needed to understand it. We've got a, one special first-time visitor with us here today, which is my 17-day-old daughter, Nika. So come on, let's give it up for Nika this morning. And since she's now 17 days old, I felt like she's old enough to be used as a prop in my sermon. And so I'm going to ask my, my beautiful, amazing wife, to bring this little baby up here for a moment. Come on, let's give it up for Lee this morning. And she's wide awake because actually she's supposed to be feeding right now, as you can see. She's looking for something. She's craving. Um, and she's so sweet and so good. But yesterday, she was cluster feeding. Now, as sweet as this little girl here looks, when she's hungry, she's savage, okay? She turns into an absolute savage. In fact, my wife and I have given her a little nickname. In the middle of the night, we call her Baby Dinosaur because she doesn't cry really, but she lets out a scream that basically sounds like a pterodactyl on a hunt. And that's how we know that it's time for her to drink. She lets us know. She communicates. And God help you if you don't get that milk to her in time. Now, speaking about this baby dinosaur, there's something that Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 2 that I want to read to you. Because he says, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk. Crave it, church. Cry out for it, church. 
not just something that you do every now and again. It's nice to read the Bible a little bit. It's nice to page through it a little bit. It is the sustenance by which you live. It is what nourishes you, what causes you to grow. Without it, you will be malnourished. He says, crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow in your salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's goodness and of his kindness. You've tasted that God is good. So like a newborn baby, crave it. Crave God's word and God's truth in every single area of your life. Amen? That's what God has for you. Well done, babes. That was a great first, first performance. Let's give it up for her. You might hear her crying out for pure spiritual milk or just milk in a little bit. You see, what happens when we get saved is that our have-tos become want-tos, but more than that, they become desperately need-tos. I desperately need God's word in my life. See, this is not, this is not duty-bound. This is not, oh, I haven't read my Bible in a while, so I feel guilty. No, you shouldn't feel guilty. You should feel hungry. I need it. I need the nourishment. How can we expect revival in our lives and in our city if we do not even know what the context for revival is? How can we preach a message that doesn't burn in our own hearts? How can we tell people what God's desire for them is when we don't even know what the word of God has to say about it? And why are we as God's people turning to every form of information and advice before we turn to the word of God? Before we turn to the divine revelation of truth that comes through to us through the scriptures. Again, the church is not a business. It's not an enterprise. It is the people of God who are about the mission of God. That's who we are. We cannot grow cold in our yearning for the scriptures or in our trust. Some of you know the scriptures. You just don't, you just don't trust in them. You just don't stake your life on them. The Bible says that as you crave that pure spiritual milk and you begin to grow and grow and grow, what happens is, is that you're able to digest more and more solid food and eventually you're eating the meat of God's word. You're able to consider weighty matters of truth and speak them in wisdom to those that need them. You're not a novice. You're not an amateur in the word of God. Now, it's okay for you to be a baby at one point in, in, in your life. We are not blaming Nika for being a baby today. She was only just born. But if I brought her back five years from now and she still looked the same and was still drinking milk, we'd say something was wrong with that development. That word for baby in the scriptures is the word napios in the Greek. It's where we get the word nappy from. And what we have as Christians, as people that have been Christians for decades, and they're still in nappies. God help us. Never grew up. A little baby needs a dummy on a Sunday. Never grew up because you didn't take God's word seriously. Because you didn't crave the spiritual milk 
and you didn't trust in it so that you would be able to then begin to digest the solidity of God's truth in your life and have it become your sustenance. So you just stayed a little nappy baby. It still needs to just be fed with a bottle every Sunday. That's not God's plan for us, church, right? Come on, even as a church, we need to mature, we need to grow. The second thing that really was just present, that was characteristic of that time when I encountered Jesus was a real urgency to share my faith. A real urgency to share my faith. How many of you, when you got saved, when you met Jesus for the first time, I mean, people couldn't stop you. You would literally be running down the streets. Every person you meet, every place you go, every conversation, you're just like, I just got to stop right now and tell you about Jesus. I've just got to tell you what I've just experienced, what I just went through, what I've just, what I've just gone through. You know, there's, there's something very powerful, very supernatural. I can't speak enough about it. And when I was at school, that was me. When that acceleration came, I mean, I would be on sports tours. I would be preaching on the bus. I'd be sharing with friends. I'd be doing it one-on-one. I'd be doing it in my community group that I started that used to run in a classroom on a Wednesday night at my school. I would do it no matter where I was in any opportunity. At one point, I considered going on the Big Brother TV show, and I thought that what I would do is just take my Bible and just preach to one of the cameras the whole time. That was my strategy. Remember when Big Brother was a thing back in the day? I was like, get me in there. I'll preach the gospel. And it made me a divisive figure in my school. People either supported me or loved me or or really, really, really disliked me. At one point, the whole school, the whole grade and, and prefects and everybody, they had a whole meeting about me. And they decided that they were going to address this with me and sent the deputy head boy to me to come and tell me to stop sharing my faith all of the time. And I remember just saying to him, I said to him, if you're, because he had a, he just had a new girlfriend he started dating at that time. I said, you've just started this new relationship and you're so in love with your girlfriend that you want to tell everybody about her, don't you? Well, that's the same with me. I love Jesus. I'm not going to stop talking about him. And then in a very kind of like high school sentimentality, bravado moment, I said, the only way you'll ever stop me talking about Jesus is if you put a bullet right here. (laughs) But I meant it. Went away, and again, they weren't happy with me, but as many people were upset with me for how much I shared my faith, I, as a pimple-faced teenager, that really knew very little about the world, that really had very little understanding about life, found myself in the privileged position over and over again to be able to usher my friends across the line of faith. And then people that I had just met, and then other people in my school, and then people outside of my school. I remember sitting with one friend that had been brought up as a Catholic and been to church, but only ever viewed it as a traditional religion, never had a personal encounter. And I could see God was stirring in him. And so in history class, I had a little, I had a little Gideon, blue little Gideon Bible in my blazer pocket. And in history class, my history teacher loved me. I had extra favor with her. I don't know why. Um, I loved history. Maybe that's why. But there was a, there was the, the, the classroom had the tables like set out in a U-shape two big U-shapes in the class for discussion. And I sat in the outside U-shape on the side, and every history class 
We didn't listen to anything the teacher was teaching. And she just kind of left me to go through the scriptures with my friend. And so we'd sit down. I was like, all right, we're in Acts chapter 3 today. Let's look at what the God, God says about the Holy Spirit. And at one point, my friend asked me, is this the same Bible that we have in our church? I was like, dude, there's only one Bible. He's like, I've never heard these things. Later on, I invited him to church. That's the one thing I did the most as I invited people to church. And he went to church with me, and, and there was a message that was shared, and he ran out of the church after the service. He ran out, and I caught up with him, turned around. He was just crying. He said, Adrian, I need to get saved. I need to receive this Jesus. I prayed with him. He's still serving Jesus today. Married a, a, a Christian girl who was serving in a church. They started serving in church together. They have either two or three kids now, I'm not 100% sure, um, but they serve in church faithfully, love Jesus. Those kids are growing up knowing Jesus. Why? Because somebody was willing to take out the little Bible and show some scriptures. I've told you the story about a friend that I led to the Lord while I was on rugby tour in Italy. Last night of the tour, we're walking in Milan, and as we're going around the block a few times, every time we get to the ho past the hotel, some guys go to bed, and eventually it's just me and this friend. We'd only really just become friends on that tour, and as we're walking, I feel like I should pray for him to receive Jesus. I've shared the gospel, and I feel like he's hearing me, but I'm a bit nervous. Now, I've shared this story before, but there was a car at a petrol station nearby, and I looked over at the car. And I prayed in my mind. I said, God, if you want me to pray with him, let that car's lights flash. And as we get closer, I realize there's no one in the car. I'm thinking, man, that was such a dumb prayer. I think I know that God wants me to like pray with him. But now I don't know, what am I going to do if the, if the lights don't flash? And as we're about to pass the car, a guy comes running out from the little shop at the fuel station, jumps in the car, starts it. And as he starts it, the lights flash. And I knew. And that was just God being gracious. I don't still pray those prayers, just so you know. I don't have to ask God every time, like, do I need to pray with someone? Like, I just know now, okay? But back then, God was gracious. The lights flashed. I sat down with him on a park bench in Milan at midnight, and he gave his life to Jesus. Canceled all of his other plans, ended up becoming a full-time ministry, a full-time missionary, and has been ministering in Africa with tribes and with peoples and training missionaries. He's now trained probably hundreds by this point over the last 20 years to go out into ministry all over the world just because a 17-year-old kid was willing to say, hey, can I pray with you? I used to buy people Bibles all of the time. Just randomly, if, if I felt that desire, I would just buy a Bible, give it to them. And I was at a men's conference in Cape Town about two years ago, and I was buying a hamburger during the, I don't know what you call it, halftime or whatever, like in between the sessions. And I was I was, I was busy buying a burger, and a guy came up to me and said, hey, Adrian. And I remembered that for a short while, somebody had invited him to our community group that later on was at my house, and he had come once or twice, and I completely forgot about this, but he said, do you know that I'm the reason here, that, that you're the reason I'm here today? I said, no way. And he said, do you know that you bought me my first Bible? He took it out. He's like, here it is. Still got your note that you wrote in the front to me. All those years ago, I had completely forgotten that I had done that. It was just kind of a thing I did. And I gave him this Bible. His, his wife was the main worship leader in that church, and his family is serving Jesus. He wasn't a Christian at the time I gave him that Bible. And I want to make this very clear. None of this today is because I was specially gifted or called or, or anything. 
this was before all of my theological training or my Bible school days or anything else. I was unqualified. I had no money. I had no platform. I didn't even have a, a stage and a microphone like so many people think they need in order to be effective for Jesus. What I had was a message in my heart and a willingness to inconvenience myself for the sake of the gospel purely because I believe that that's what God expected of me. I believe that was his expectation. I'll tell you one more story. There was a Hindu girl in our school, and she was a grade ahead of me. I was in grade 11. She was in matric, and she was doing her matric exams, final exams, and she was tired of studying. So she decided on that day, she was instead of studying, she was going to go watch the athletics and just come with us, go on the bus, and just support. And so she's on the bus. And while we're on the, on the bus on the way to athletics, I don't know why, but I get the sense that I should ask her whether or not she wants to be baptized. She's just a Hindu girl in our school. So I turn to her and I say, hey, have you ever thought about being baptized? And as I say that, she bursts into tears. So I'm like, or not. Nobody's forcing you. I'm already in trouble with people. Please don't tell people I made you cry. And she says, that that morning, when she calmed down, she tells me that morning, she had been considering Jesus. God had been working in her life, unbeknownst to me. And that morning, she had asked God, God, should I get baptized? But for her as a Hindu girl, that had serious ramifications with her family. She could get into real trouble. She could actually be kicked out of her family for making a public confession of her faith which is what God calls us all to. She could get into real trouble and she's weighing these weighty matters. She's counting the cost saying, God, should I get baptized? And again, a 17-year-old kid on his way to run the 400 meters looks at her and says, have you ever thought about getting baptized? Again, I'm not specially gifted. That was just when you're available to the Holy Spirit, he will use you, mark my words. He will use you in extraordinary ways. She ended up joining my community group. She got baptized. We baptized her. She came to my community group. Because the community group was at school, she had to get her dad, obviously she didn't have a license yet, had to get her dad to drop her off at community group and told him that she was doing extra history lessons, which technically is truthful. <laughs> it, it was history. That's how she came. Today, she's still in full-time ministry with her husband in a church in Joburg. I invited people to church all the time. I could tell you many more stories, but all I want to tell you is it was because I believed that God required this of me. Matthew 10, 20, uh, 32 to 33, Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. You don't get to be an anonymous undercover Christian. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a misnomer. It doesn't exist. You either confess Jesus publicly and live for him or you're not a part of him. And that, those are not my words and I'm not trying to be harsh this morning. Please hear my heart. This is Jesus's standard. Now I know that the goal is to reach people. And to effectively love them and reveal God to them. And so I want to add to that, that soul winning is wise work. 
a lot of the methods that I was employing at the time, even though God was gracious and they had some results, was immature and, and I could have journeyed better with so many of my unbelieving friends at the time. And so we as adults can be a lot more uh, um, wise and circumspect in how we approach this and more respectful in how we reach people. But I would rather have you be overzealous than stone cold. And if the words of Jesus are true to the church in Laodicea, he prefers that as well. Sometimes we use the idea of being respectful or, 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 or not being pushy with our religion or whatever as a cover-up for the fact that we have grown cold. That we don't actually have the desire at all. And Jesus says, I would rather have you be hot or cold than be lukewarm. When people come to me with all kinds of doctrinal issues that they want to, that, that it's their specific little hobby horse and they want to know what do I think about that idea in scripture or with this theology or that translation and they, they have all these bones to pick with me, my first question is always to make sure that they're not straining out the gnats, the little things, while at the same time swallowing camels whole, missing the big picture. My first question is, are you leading people to the Lord currently? How many people have you shared your faith with in this last year? How many people have you prayed for in this last year? How many people have you reached out to? Because if you are so incredibly inspired, like, you know, just intent on getting every piece of little doctrine re right and ready, but you're not sharing the gospel, you're missing something. You've gotten skewed. We cannot be more passionate about theology than people, than the gospel. Romans 10, 13 to 15 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. How beautiful is it when people choose to be messengers, to be angels to a city that go to that city, that go to those people and to share the good news so that those who hear it may believe it and may receive it. I wanna ask you today, who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Who is on your mind that you wanna reach out to today? Joe and I, have a friend, Joe, sitting here. We have a, a, a mutual friend that, that is not yet a believer, and we were having a conversation the other day, and we said, let's pray him into the kingdom. And I'm telling you, the day will come as we keep praying that he will be standing in this room worshiping with us. I can already see it now. Who are you praying for? Who do you want to see standing in this room worshiping alongside you? Final one this morning is a compelling desire to see my friends discipled. I wasn't okay with just creating converts. I wanted to see my friends. I wanted to see the people that looked up to me, the people that I led to the Lord. I wanted to see the people around me genuinely take God at his word and begin to grow as God had destined for them. And in order to do this, I didn't need a platform and a microphone 
I didn't need a church, my own church or my own ministry or an ordination certificate. I didn't need anybody to recognize this. This was, again, prior to all of my theological studies. All those things came as the result of what I had naturally been doing for years. It just came out of me. I was going to do it. In any context, I did it one-on-one. I did it in my community group. I did it at parties and next to sports fields and during my lunch hour, wherever anybody would hear some truth from God's word, I was ready to share. When I started working at Standard Bank as a 19-year-old in the call center in COD division. Anybody ever work in a call center? We're still praying for healing from the trauma. The, you know, for me, the worst was you could never put the phone down. It's on your ear and the next call, when you've done one, the next one just comes through. But I started a Christian group that met in the canteen of the card division in Commissioner Street in the building on the 29th floor. For everybody who wants to know more about Jesus, just come. I'm, if you want to, I'm going to teach. I'm going to share. I'm, we're going to talk. I didn't need somebody to give me a pat on the back and a microphone and a platform. And and that's really what the church is. We should genuinely be compelled by the love of Christ. Now, listen to this beautiful scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.11. It says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. How's that for a verse? Because we understand our fearful responsibility. Why is it fearful? You'll give an account to whether or not you took that responsibility. We work hard, therefore, to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, the love of Christ compels us. Why does God's love compel us? Because we've concluded something. What have we concluded? Christ died for all. That's our conclusion. So because he died for everyone, the love of God within us compels us to go out and to share the gospel, whether or not they think we're crazy, whether or not they think we're too much, whether or not they think we're too uh, intense, whether or not, whatever they think, we do it to the glory of God because we are compelled by a love for a people that is God's love. We also believe that we've all died to our old life. Previously, we lived for our own comforts. We lived to find value in our own possessions and in our own things, but we've died to that life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Your life's not your own. You've been bought at a price. So we don't live for ourselves. That's not what we're here for. Instead, we live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So, so, so this idea that our greatest priority in life is whatever we feel we want and we need and our own self-actualization and self-fulfillment and, 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 and self-expression is a demonic idea. You died to that old life. 
And you now are no longer living for yourself. So we, we do the ministry. We are the church. We share the gospel. Because we've concluded that Jesus died for everyone. And our lives are not our own. And we've got a role to play because Jesus died and was raised for them. And so God's Holy Spirit is moving us to make disciples. To bear fruit in the kingdom. To not live for ourselves any, anymore. Because Jesus is our life. He gave us the commission, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, to observe everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, we partner with Jesus. We partner with the Holy Spirit in this commission. But sadly, for our generation and what we're in danger of in our church, in our time, is that the great commission becomes the great omission the thing we forgot. We're so busy trying to see what is in the gospel for us that we forgot that we're supposed to be sharing it with others. This commission wasn't just to pastors, but to every believer. So again, how many people are you discipling right now? Personally, intentionally. I want to end finally on a verse that I'll expand a bit more on next week as we go on in this series. I don't know exactly how long the series is going to be. I just feel like there's some things that we should look at, and, and, and it's going to be practical as well. We're going to look at some of these personal encounters that people had with Jesus and personal moments of ministry, and we're going to learn some lessons out of that to see how we can be more effective in reaching our world. But in John 1 verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak, followed Jesus, who followed Jesus, was, was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. How many of you have a friend or a family member that brought you to Jesus? Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. See, we don't have to look far to find people to reach. Sometimes we think we have to travel to a different country or start some ministry. But, but even though everybody knows Peter, the apostle Peter, the first lead elder of the church, the one who wrote the epistles of First and Second Peter, the one that's spoken about in so many of the scriptures, this first leader of the church of Jesus Christ, at one point was just a fisherman with a brother. And when his brother had heard the gospel, it says he first went to his own brother. He dragged him to Jesus. Some of you have been dragged to Jesus. It's okay. Because what happened was, he said, we found the Messiah. Peter gets there. Jesus looks at him and what does he have? A personal encounter. Peter, Simon, he has a personal encounter. And it says this, it says, Jesus looked at him. How beautiful. Have you felt Jesus look at you? We want our city to experience this. We could only imagine what Jesus knew about Peter in that moment. I wonder if Jesus saw the potential, the ministry, the fruitful years of leadership, even Perhaps Peter's martyrdom, how he would 
die at the hands of the Roman Empire for his faith in Jesus. In that moment, he was just a fisherman, but Jesus saw him as something different. It's like he was looking at Simon saying, you and I both know where you've been, who you've been, and who you are, but I'm seeing something different in, right, in you right now. I'm seeing who you're gonna be. You might have been Simon up until this point, but from now on, you'll be Peter. I have a role for you to play. That's what a personal encounter with Jesus does. That's what happens when people meet their creator and their savior. And thank God for Andrew that had the compassion to go and find his brother and bring him to Jesus. It enriched the church as a result. Last question. Who are you going to bring to church next Sunday? Who are you going to share your faith with this week? If you pray for those God appointments, if you pray for those opportunities, God loves people. He will bring them to you. And then we've just got to be faithful and obedient and compelled enough by the love of Christ to take that step of faith and to share. Can we do that this week? I feel like this is what God's saying to our church. I don't just want to develop some attractional model to get people through the door. I want us to be the church and to reach the city.